Our gospel lesson for today is found in Matthew chapter 6. We are reading verses 1 through 19. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in heaven, who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward." But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal." For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come today before you, we confess that in us there is poverty, but in your Son there are riches. In us there is ignorance, but in your Son there is wisdom. In us there is darkness. But with your Son, there is light. And so we ask that by your Spirit, you would illumine our darkness, that you would grant us wisdom, and that you'll give us life today as we come to your word. We are poor and needy. We need your help. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, my oldest son was preparing for a hiking adventure with his Boy Scout troop where they would go to Camp Philmont in New Mexico and climb several 14,000 foot peaks. It was going to be an epic journey and so the 
the crew that was going needed to do some preparation. And so over one spring break in particular, they planned a preparation hike where they were going to go to the North Georgia mountains and take the AT approach trail to Springer Mountain. I rose early one morning to drop Sim off for this preparation hike. The parking lot was dark. It was about 5.15 in the morning, and the boys were quietly assembling their gear and saying goodbye to their parents. But that quiet was shattered by one voice, Mr. Greggs. Mr. Greggs was an adult leader, and he was intent on whipping this crew into shape. He regularly reminded them of how unprepared they were for the rigors of Philmont and how it was evident it was his job to prepare them. And so up and down the parking lot, he was barking and harassing. It got to be so much that I just looked at Sim and asked, is it okay if I go? He said, yes. Um, after an eight-hour drive, they arrived at Amicalola Falls. They were in the parking lot camping for the evening, and they would begin their hike the next day. Mr. Greggs received a phone call back from Jacksonville, and there had been some items found in the parking lot. In fact, it was one boot and one backpack that had been left behind. And so Mr. Greggs took the opportunity to preach to the scouts. He lined them up and asked the question repeatedly, how were they going to hike the next day without a boot and without their gear in a backpack? It was somewhat rhetorical. It had the flares of a sermon, perhaps in a moralistic bent, as they were asked the question. No scout claimed responsibility, and they were all wondering exactly who was the victim of this and what was going to happen next at the hands of Mr. Greggs. They returned to setting up camp, muttering about the situation, and it was at that point that Mr. Greggs began to unpack his own car. Suddenly, he calls out to his son, and he says, Joey, have you seen my boot? <laughs> then a few moments later, Joey, have you seen my backpack? And then suddenly the heavens opened, and the truth descended, where it became very clear that despite all the sermons about the virtues of preparation, who was going to make it on the hike and who was not, that the failure of the boot in the backpack was Mr. Greg, <laughs> that it was his own, his own material that had been left in the parking lot. And there's something about stories like this, where we find someone preaching a certain message and then coming up short themselves, that absolutely infuriates us. It also deeply entertains us. We find the theme throughout Western literature, whether it's Mr. Brocklehurst in Jane Eyre, or whether it's Reverend Gabriel Grimes in Go Tell It on the Mountain, or whether it's New England society in, a scarlet, in the Scarlet Letter. Stories of hypocrisy entertain us, they infuriate us, and also we have a distaste for it. We know that it's an example to be avoided. And Jesus in Matthew 6 is deeply concerned with that same dynamic 
He's concerned with hypocrisy. Three times, in verse 2, in verse 5, and then once again in verse 16, he tells us not to be like the hypocrites. And he provides us three examples of hypocrisy that we are to avoid. However, the most challenging thing here is that Jesus expands what is our traditional notion of hypocrisy. See, rather than focusing on a virtue preached, but not then practiced, what Jesus addresses as hypocrisy is a conflict between external action and internal motivation. And suddenly the definition of hypocrisy strikes very close at home, where there is this divorce between what we do externally and then what we think inside the attitude of the heart. And Jesus is saying that this person with this divided external action and internal motivation is extremely dangerous. And he indicates that they're dangerous because they're self-deceived. That they themselves don't know that they're a hypocrite. And so it's incredibly important for us this morning not to turn our judgment outward. To think of others and to assess whether they are a hypocrite or not. But it's incredibly important for us to turn our judgment inward to assess ourselves and to consider our own hearts before God and how we can be divided in external action and internal motivation. And so to do so, we'll consider three things about hypocrisy. First, we'll consider its nature. Second, we'll look at a specific symptom that Jesus addresses. And then third, we'll consider its reform. And so first, the nature of hypocrisy. Jesus begins the second main section of his sermon. Remember, this is all one elaborate sermon. And he begins the second main section in chapter 6, and he opens with these words, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. After this general heading where he announces a warning and admonishment to beware of something, he then provides three examples, common evidently in their day, of practicing righteousness, that is engaging in devotional religious behaviors before others. And so let's consider those three examples. In verse 2, we find the first one. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And then in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And then once again in verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Now, it's important to note that Jesus three times says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast. He is commending these behaviors, that these behaviors are commendable because for someone's life that's been intersected by the grace of God, when Jesus has come to us and healed us, 
When Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom and we're reconciled to God the Father in and through him, that there are certain behaviors that then flow from a life that has been intersected in that way. And so Jesus is saying when, when that happens, this type of stuff is going to emerge in your life. But he's also warning us that that type of religious devotion, things like prayer, things like generosity, things like fasting, can be corrupted by our motives. And so we can practice righteousness, but we can do so because what our real aim and our real goal is to receive praise from others. We can practice righteousness. It can appear that way, but we can really be seeking to advance ourselves amongst our peers. We can be using our religion to get ahead. We can practice righteousness, and we can do so because what we really want to get is acceptance from others. And Jesus condemns any type of corrupt motive like this. A motivation fixated on the horizontal axis of human life. A motivation that fixates on that horizontal axis of human opinion, but ignores the vertical axis of love for God. He then is going to go further, and he's going to say that this corrupt motive reveals something even further about us. If you look at the close of this section of Jesus' sermon in verses 19 through 21, you see in verse 21 where he sums it all up and says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what Jesus teaches here is that what we value, our treasure, reveals what we love. And then he takes it a step further because what we love is who we are. And friends, this is the truth. And when we're consumed with human measurement, when we're consumed with human praise, when we're consumed with human acceptance, and when this is the goal of what we do in our religious life, Jesus says that we are people who are storing up treasure on earth and that we have all the reward that we're going to get. That there's nothing out in front of you, that God doesn't have something stored up that he's going to share with you and lavish upon you because he's really not your God, that what you love is something else. It's another object. And friends, this is the nature of hypocrisy that really concerns Jesus. When he looks at his church and he considers his people, He's concerned that we have this divorce, this divide between our external actions, what we do and what we know is right behavior, things we're to do like generosity, things we're to do like praying, things we're to do like fasting, but knowing that we can take those good things and we can corrupt them and abuse them and apply all of our mixed motivations to them. And so he wants us to understand the nature of hypocrisy, to know the depths of sinfulness that can invade the human heart. But the second thing Jesus does here in the sermon is he also gives us a specific symptom of hypocrisy. If you notice his second area of teaching here in, 
in chapter 6, he addresses prayer, and he breaks his pattern when you look in verses 7 through 15. In verse 5, he admonishes us not to be like the hypocrites who stand and pray at the synagogues, and as one who is paid to professionally pray, this is a particularly haunting verse. (laughs) But then he gives another admonition when he arrives in verse 7, and he says, don't pray like those who don't know God. He's speaking of the nations that surrounded Israel who worshiped the pantheon of gods. And he says, don't pray like them. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer as an example. And he says, pray like this. We, of course, could have an entire sermon series just on this prayer alone, but we're looking at the bigger picture here. And when Jesus critiques the forms of prayer that surrounded him in the ancient world around the Mediterranean, what he was critiquing were two practices. One, that there was a habit of piling up names for God, something like rubbing the genie and trying to get the genie out of the bottle, trying to coax God to do something. And so the Gentile prayers typically began with long list of God's names. The God of the sea, the God of the heavens, the God of the fertility, trying to call on God just right in order to convince him to do something that he was really reluctant to do. And so there was a piling up of names. And then there was also a piling up of time that took place. It was thought that if time was devoted, if repetition and supplications were just pouring over one another, that the God might be manipulated. He might be turned. It was prayer that ultimately came from an anxious place and not from a settled relationship. It was not a secure relationship. At its core, it was fundamentally insecure. Prayer was approached as a way to incline or to induce the gods to do something that they didn't want to do. And what's important for us to catch is the connection that Jesus is making here. See, it's this anxiety, this insecurity that characterized the prayer of the nations that Jesus is now addressing. And he's addressing it, and he's making the connection to hypocrisy. Because what he picks up here is that those who are motivated by the, by the praise of others, when your religious life is drawn to just receiving accolades and receiving praise from other people, that you will share in this same kind of fundamental insecurity. Because, see, your religious life has been captivated by the praise of other humans. You've lived to climb ladders in the horizontal realm of earthly reality. You've been motivated by belonging and being accepted by other people. And so what will happen inevitably in your relationship with God is that you'll relate to him in the same way. It'll be about manipulating, it'll be about using, it'll be about climbing. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to speak about prayer Because he understands that this very thing, this religious activity, one of the most important that the Bible assigns to us, it reveals it's a symptom. When it's being abused, when it's being used manipulatively, 
that it reveals the heart of religious hypocrisy. There's no confidence, but only profound insecurity in the soul. And this insecurity, no matter how masked it is by religious devotion, no matter how professional the person may be, it is that strong symptom of religious hypocrisy. And so Jesus teaches us to pray in a very different way. He teaches us to pray in six simple petitions. And it begins with these words, Our Father in heaven. And what Jesus is doing is saying that we can call confidently upon God. We don't have to pile up the names. And we can come to him because he already knows our needs. And we're to make those needs known. We're to begin by extolling God and asking for his name to be known, for his kingdom to expand, and then we can arrive at our own personal needs. But the great truth of this prayer that Jesus teaches us is that it's not manipulative. You're not trying to get the genie out of the bottle, but actually it's a prayer rooted in a confidence that the religious hypocrite never knows. It's saying our Father because we know that we have been adopted and that we learn to say, Father, through the true Son, Jesus. Jesus, the beloved Son with whom God was well pleased, who came on our behalf, who goes to the cross and gives himself. It's only in him that we have adoption. And it's only in him and through him that we can come and say the words, Father. That that's not the general right of creation, but this is the general right of those who've been adopted and drawn out of their sins and made God's own people. And so, friends, this symptom of hypocrisy, it exposes itself in prayer and it exposes itself in how we relate to God when we try to use him for our own ends because this is what we've trained ourselves to do in the world and it inevitably impacts our relationship with God. But the third thing we find here in Jesus' teaching on hypocrisy is also he points to the reform of it. Three times in the passage, we're encouraged to practice our righteousness in secret. Jesus obviously uses the technique of wisdom literature where he speaks in the extreme, where he's saying it's better to go to the closet and, and shut the door than to be seen praying on the street corner. Of course, there's going to be prayer in public, and he tells us that we are to have our light shine in public in such a way that people glorify God, so he's not saying that everything has to be done in secret, but rather that it's best that it be done that way if you're falling into the trap of receiving the praise of others. But what Jesus says those three times is it's better to pray or to give to the Father who sees in secret and you find the repetition of that three times in verse 4, in verse 6, and in verse 18. And Jesus calls God Father and calls him Father on our behalf as well, and it's striking. He has taught us to address God this way in and through him. And it is this address. In that address, we find the way of the reform of our hypocrisy. Now, there's two things important to note about the term father from the ancient world and the way it's being used in the Bible. First, that the term father is a term of respect, and it captures something of God's majesty and of his transcendence, that he is the one who reigns over heaven and earth, that he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. 
He rules over all. And so we're told three times by Jesus in this section of the sermon, and when he repeats something, it's because he wants to drive it home, that this is the Father who sees. This is the Father who sees and the Father who has rewards. And so not only does he know everything and see through everything, he's also the one who will bring all things into judgment and make all things right. And so he sees our generosity. He sees our prayers offered in secret. He sees our fasting. But also the implication is that he sees our injustice. He sees our prayerlessness. He sees our lack of trust in him. That he knows that all, that no secrets can be hidden from his sight. And friends, if we want to break down the religious hypocrisy that lurks within, this is the place that we have to begin. We have to begin with a sensitive conscience that's sensitive to God's evaluation of us and also longs for his reward. That is all that he has stored up in Jesus for us, in the heavenly places. All that he intends to bring down upon the earth in healing all the creation. That he wants us to long for that more than we want the stuff of earth. And this is the problem of the religious hypocrite. Is that they are insensitive to that evaluation. And ultimately insensitive to that great design of God to heal and renew everything. Because what they want is in the present, defined in the horizontal. And so this is the first thing that Jesus is attempting to awaken us to in teaching us to use the term Father. But second, Father was not only a term of respect that brings us into the majesty and the transcendence of God. It was also a term of endearment. It was an intimate and tender term. And it speaks to something of the security of the relationship between the child and God being addressed. There was intimacy, but more importantly, there was adoption. As we said just a moment ago, that in the beloved son who comes, when Jesus is baptized and the heavens are open and he's identified as the beloved son, the one with whom God is pleased, that friends... That announcement is made over all who are then united to Jesus. That you are the beloved sons and you are the beloved daughters. You are the beloved children of God. Because the true son went down into death on your behalf, God is pleased with him because he takes up that calling to be the sacrificial one who suffers on our behalf, who pays for our sins. This is what he does. And now you have the freedom and the right and the great privilege to come to God and call him Father, secure in that relationship. And friends, it is this grace and love of the gospel, recognizing that we're adopted and brought into the relationship, not because of our achievements, not due to our devotional practices, not due to our religious intensity, not due to all the accolades we may receive, but we're only brought into this relationship by the grace and love of Jesus. This is the ultimate undoing of religious hypocrisy. It's the only thing that can melt it. It's the only thing that can break it down. It's the only thing that ultimately can destroy it and orient us 
to that Father in heaven who loves us, who sees and knows it all, knows the corruption in us, but loves us in his Son and promises to reward us with things that go beyond sight and imagination. And so we all know hypocrisy is a distasteful thing. You never want to be the guy who preaches certain virtues and then doesn't perform. We don't want to be the one with one boot and without a backpack. However, we've seen today that we're all exposed. Hypocrisy for Jesus is defined even more rigorously. And who can escape the divide between external action and internal motivation? And Jesus says it's hypocrisy. When what we're seeking is the praise of men and not the love of God, and that we're revealing something about what we truly love and who we are, but he also frees us from it. And he's calling us to put it away, to be done with it, knowing that we have a Father who sees, who knows it all, and knowing that we have a gracious Savior who reconciles us to him, who loves us with depths that we cannot understand and adopts us as his own. And so allow that love to break down the holds and the binding nature of hypocrisy. And let's be done with it. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we need your help. Hypocrisy runs deep within us. We preach and don't practice, and yet we also have this divide between our internal motivations and our external actions. Lord, have mercy on us. Drive out all that is displeasing in our motivations through the love of the gospel. May we know that we can call you Father because of the true Son and because of all your grace. May we take up that freedom. Help us, God, where we're weak. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.